This month on the Voices of Experience podcast, how do you build a healthy office culture? If, you, if you're asking that question, you don't understand the very definition of the word culture. Well, Rob Cohen gets it, and he has a recipe for cooking up a set of values your employees believe in and buy into. It's not senior leadership, it's not the CEO, it's the entire organization who owns culture. And you have to protect and defend culture every day. Rob Cohen moved to Denver for love and ended up loving Denver. In the 37 years since he settled down in the Mile High City, he's won just about every local award you can win for leadership and community service. That's because Cohen, the chairman and CEO of IMA Financial Group, has set the standard for attracting talented workers, creating an enjoyable workplace, and keeping up in the areas of diversity, equity, and inclusion. On this episode, we talk about what he's learned over his lengthy career, whether it's how to keep things interesting in the office, how to approach social justice issues, or how he's learned to juggle so many competing priorities. Good to have you here, Rob. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So we just gave your bio in the intro there, but I was reading a little Q&A you did with the Denver Business Journal in 2019, and you said you would title your biography or autobiography, No Way in Hell. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Oh, it's just because of all the people during my life who've told me there was no way in hell I could do whatever it is that I was trying to do. And so um, a couple years ago, I just started to jot down the name. Of all the people who told me things like that, just and I thought if I ever do write a book, that I will title it "No Way in Hell" and I'll put all their names in the in, in the intro of the book. <laughs> I love that. Even for someone who has risen to your position, there's been a lot of doubters, huh? Always, um, you know, if you're pushing to do anything of consequence and you want to, you want to set your visions high, there's always people who ask you why or think that you can't do it, and so. It's just part part of the journey, right? 1989 is when you opened IMA Financial Group's Denver office, and you've been with the company ever since, right? So that's 34, 30, yep, 34 years, 2023 now. I feel like that is a really rare career path these days. I was wondering if that was the plan for you to get to a company and stay there. No, I mean, I think y- you kind of have a vision in your life and how things might go, et cetera. And Um, I actually started a fortune 500 company. And when I went there, I thought that would be the place that I would certainly stay for a while. Um, but then, you know, the, the two things kicked in the entrepreneur bug kind of, kind of got within me and then just, um, the life journey. And so it just kind of ended up that I ended up here and, and wanted to create that opportunity and off we went. (laughs) 34 years is a while in the business world. Yes. How do you keep it interesting after all these years? Yeah, I think I think the key is to to constantly be changing and innovating and and really looking at what it is that not only you're doing but what it is that the company is doing. I think that's the big mistake that a a lot of organizations make, right? They um, there was a book, famous book written after this called Good to Great that I've you heard know, that's a favorite of yours. It is one of my favorites because I think it's so true, right? When things are good, it's hard to make change and really aspire to be great. And um, and so, you know, what I've always challenged myself is when things are good, are there a way to kind of relook at them, reassess, maybe break the things that are even working so that you can, uh, you know, really strive to be great. How do you know when a moment is good, but maybe not as good as it could be? 
You know, I always tell people that it's that point in time in your, you know, certainly in business when everything is just rocking and rolling, right? It, it feels good. Um, you know, the trajectory is good. Everything's really, the people are happy around you, et cetera. And it's usually at those moments where if you're not paying attention, something's going to come out of the blue that you don't see, whether it's a economic downturn or a pandemic or mm -hmm. whatever it might be. And so, you need to be in the process of challenging yourself kind of to say what happens if this train stops running in a good way so that you're prepared to make that move um, when, when that distraction comes. Could you tell us about a time either recently or notably in your career when that's happened to you? Well, the pandemic is probably the classic example. So right before that, you know, we were really, doing good as a, as, as a company. Everything was moving in the direction that we wanted. But um, we really assessed and said, you know, there are two options at this point. We can do IMA 2.0, or we could try to do something really revolutionary and really something that could change not only our business, but, but the industry. And we started having those conversations. And then when the pandemic came along, most people went pencils down and kind of curled up in a ball to see what's going to happen during the pandemic. And we kind of looked around and said, this is our opportunity to make that shift. This is our opportunity to reinvent ourselves. We did a, a recapitalization at that point. We kind of, you know, doubled down on our strategic plan and really took advantage of the opportunity that we had because we were all working at home and we had more time on our hands to really try to accelerate things. And, you know, our company has tripled, almost quadrupled since the pandemic began. Um, uh, it was really just being ready for that moment when it came. Was it smooth and simple as that? It's never smooth and simple. <laughs> Anyone who tells you that is, is, is lying to you. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's the fun part of the journey, right? Is um, there's always obstacles, there's always challenges. Um, but if you're with like-minded people who share your value system and you, you have a lot of alignment in that, then you'll sit down and have honest, conversations and figure out how to work your way through it. Another thing I was reading about that you had to react to and, and pivoted for was the murder of George Floyd Correct. Uh, a couple of years ago. And I understand diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, is a pretty central pillar of who you are. I want to talk about that, but first, how did you pivot? How did you react? How did you even absorb that news in that situation? Yeah, I think, you know, everybody was affected by George Floyd in um, in a different way, prim primarily because it's all about your own life experiences that you had up to that point. Um, but for me, that was a seminal moment in that, um, you know, we've heard of these things before, and it's, it's not new. And DEI certainly wasn't new to our company. But to sit on your living room couch and to watch the murder of somebody on your television was quite emotional for me personally. Um, and it really caused me to assess and, and really ask myself why. And, um, and I sat down and drafted an email um, to our associates that day that ended up um, turning into an editorial in, in the Denver Post, which, um, you know, I titled, you know, how did this happen? We let it happen, meaning that us, the white people, let it happen. Um, and obviously that didn't sit well with a lot of people. But um, for me, that was just my honest truth that, you know, I think a lot of us had been quiet, had not been allies, had not really stepped up for um, the type of change that I think 
uh, was needed. Uh, again, this isn't new. We, we, we saw the civil rights movement in the 1960s. So this mm. has been going on for, you know, 50, 60 years in our country. And, um, and so for me, it really caused me to assess and say, you know, doing the same old thing is not the right answer. Now we have to do something different. We have to be honest about the conversation and we have to challenge people to think differently. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons that I started the pledge, which is, you know, CEOs uniting against racism. Um, and it was really a pledge that we were taking to, um, do things differently and not just in our own companies. It's not about, you know, changing the way our workforce looks or the conversations we're having. It's really understanding the inequities that happen in our healthcare system and our education system and our social justice system. Um, and really, um, seeing how we can unite and make a change. We'll be sure to link that editorial in our show notes too. So people can read it if they'd like. You mentioned that you are white. I am white. I feel like it can be tough for a lot of white people, myself included, to approach these issues of racial inequity and social justice. How do you do it? There's no right way to do it. I mean, you know, kind of our motto inside our company was listen, learn, and then lead. I think the mistake that many of us make is we want to help, and so we lean right into leading. And, um, and you know, it's against our nature, right, to take time to really listen and try to understand what are the issues and really learn um, and have that perspective. And, and by the way, it's not others' obligation to teach us. It's our obligation to go ask the questions and then listen to the responses um, that we're getting so that we can learn. And then once we've kind of done that, then, then if you see things where you think you can make a difference, then lean in and lead. I was reading a little bit about your upbringing, Rob, and it sounds like you had exposure to diversity, equity, inclusion issues at a young age and your parents were, were pretty involved with that work. Yeah. My, uh, my mom was really well ahead of her time in that, um, when I was in elementary school, she really felt like it was important for me to get exposure um, to the world. And, uh, and so she specifically enrolled me um, in a predominantly all African-American school where instead of being the majority, I was in the minority. Um, but, you know, when you're in the third, fourth grade <laughs> as, as a kid, yeah, um, you don't see the world in the same way that many people as adults um, see it. And so many of those you know, classmates that I had became my very best friends. And so that was part of my life journey that gave me just a little different insight. You know, when I went into the school store to buy a comb, there was no comb, there were only picks. And, um, and it gives you some understanding of what an African-American might feel like walking into a grocery store and where they, they can find combs, but they can't find picks. Um, and so, um, you know, and these are subtle little messages when you're a third, fourth, fifth, sixth grader um, that stick with you for the rest of your life. Maybe it's fair to say then, given your childhood experiences, that DEI has been on your radar longer than it has been on a lot of CEOs' radars. I'm curious, though, how your understanding of DEI has changed over the years or even recently. Well, I... Um, Look, we all, we all have biases, right? We have conscious and unconscious biases. And, um, and it's, it's hard to confront your biases. And, 
even with my own experience, I still have biases. And if you deny them, then, you know, that's part of the problem. Right. And, um, and so, you know, what, what, what you realize is that this is about lifelong learning. This is, this is not a journey that has a destination that you're going to arrive at. Um, this is a journey that we're all on and, and doesn't matter when my journey started or when your journey started, it, what's important is that we're all on it. And we give people grace for being where they are on the journey. Um, yet we try to keep ourselves open to learning. Where do you see the DEI work at IMA going from here forward? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm proud of our, um, associates for really stepping up and, and, and leaning in and, um, and I'm speaking in kind of the majority as opposed to everybody, because again, I just said this, everybody that works in our company is at a different place in their journey. Some are just beginning, some are, are deeply uh, into it. But I, I think there has been a, a, a coalescing around the importance of this discussion and dialogue. And many of our associates have been quite brave to kind of stand up and tell their story. And, um, whether that's around sexual orientation or race or religion or uh, mental health issues. I mean, there, there are a number of, of different things that our associates have stepped up and made themselves vulnerable in front of their associates, which is really incredibly hard to do. And as I said earlier, it's not their obligation to do that. Um, but it is quite helpful to the journey and having people understand um, the perspectives that each other have. And then, you know, lead, leading in kind of um, our own work in terms of diversifying our workforce. I'm quite proud of, you know, when George Floyd was murdered, we were like 6% diverse. Today we're 16% diverse um, in, in our company. That doesn't happen by, by having quotas or requirements, you know, what I've said to our staff is if we want to have a diverse workforce, then we have to have every open position we have has to have a diverse set of candidates apply for the job. And then we pick the best candidate. And if you do that and you pick the best candidate, you truly will be diverse. Um, but you have to work on the front end to make sure that the pool of candidates are diverse. Um, and, um, it doesn't mean one person gets an advantage over the other. Once you have the final candidates, it should be the best man, woman, regardless of their sexual orientation, their color of their skin, their religion, whatever it is. This all leads me into a question I wanted to ask you about office culture, which is something that I feel like we just kind of throw around. We all want a good culture in our, in our workplace. On your LinkedIn, I read that you are proud of building what you call an industry-leading employee culture. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit of your handbook for what it, what are the step-by-steps for creating a good culture in the workplace? Yeah, I always, um, you know, they can't, they can't see on the podcast, but I always smile and chuckle at this question because I, 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 I get it frequently. People often say, you know, how did you build the culture? And I say, if, you, if you're asking that question, you don't understand the very definition <laughs> of the word culture. A single individual cannot build or create a culture by its very definition, it's a group of people. But what an individual can do is have a set of values and they can live and aspire those values every day and they can attract other people who have shared values. And over time, those become the predominant values uh, of a company. And then as you, you know, what most companies have risk at is as they get scale, 
then the values start to change, right? Because, I mean, the culture starts to change because the values mm. of the individuals are changing. And so what I've said from day one is it's not senior leadership. It's not the CEO. It's the entire organization who owns culture. And you have to protect and defend culture every day. So if you see an individual who is not living the shared values that the organization has, if you don't say something, you're just as guilty as the CEO or the senior leaders in not protecting and defending the culture. Um, and that's very hard to do, right, in, to, in, in today's business world. But if you do that and you give people the ability to do that and the freedom to do that and they take it to heart, then you can build a culture. It doesn't matter whether you're 50 people, 100 people, 500, or as we are now, 2,000 plus people, um, you can still protect and defend the culture. And so, you know, the simple answer to the question is the people have uh, built the culture and they have protected and defended it. One of the values that it seems is really important to you is this giving back to the community, community service. I know that when you opened IMA Financial Group's Denver office, you also started the IMA Foundation at the same time, right? Yes, the foundation, it, it existed beforehand, but I wanted to make sure that it was certainly part of what we were doing here in Denver. How do those two things work together? Yeah, I mean, it was it was really funny because all the advisors, you know, would tell me, you know, you don't need to focus on building a foundation. You haven't even, you know, got a dollar of revenue or, or a dollar of profit. You know, how are you, why are you worried about how you're going to give it away? And I said, Look, if it's not in your DNA from day one, that a percentage of your profit every day that, that you earn is going to go back to the communities that you live and work in, um, then it's hard to create that, um, that focus at a, at a later time. And part of that came out of the fact that I had made, you know, all these physical moves over that period of time. But also part of it was instilled again by my mom and and dad who, you know, I would go out trick-or-treating for Halloween and when we came back, my mom would make us sit on the floor and sort our candy and and one would go in a basket that we could enjoy, uh, you know, over a period of time, but the rest uh, went to be given away. You know, they went to places where kids didn't have the same opportunities to go trick-or-treating. Same same thing at the, at the holidays. If I, if I wrote a list of gifts that I wanted for the holiday, my mom would make me sort my sister and I sort our toys and decide which ones we were going to give away to make room for the new ones. And so those things have been instilled in me personally. I missed them when I was um, going through that career part of my life where I you know, was, for lack of a better term, climbing the corporate ladder. And then when I moved to Denver, I realized that by a lot of people's definition, I was more successful than many of my friends and peers, but I didn't feel successful because I didn't have this place to call home. I didn't have this place that's community. And um, so it just became very important that we do that from day one. I guess the adult business professional version of that kind of altruism is doing a lot of nonprofit work, serving on boards, and you do an awful lot of that. Mm -hmm. I read that you've served on more than 20 nonprofit boards from the I Have a Dream Foundation to the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce to the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Foundation. My first question when I read all that was, where do you find the time? You are also the CEO and chairman of a major company. Yeah, you know, and you find time for the things you prioritize, right? And uh, if you pri prioritize family, you'll find time for family. If you prioritize work and, you know, 
Uh, I'm not one to sit here and say I am the the perfect example of balance because I'm not. I mean, the very definition of balance means, you know, is in my, in my, in my way of looking at it is over our entire lifetime that, you know, we might have these utopian moments where everything's perfect in our lives, but for most of us, you know, it's this yin and yang, right? And so, you know, you just got to constantly make sure that the things you're volunteering for are things you're truly passionate about and that you really feel like you can make a difference in, and then you just try to if it's important to you, you try to figure out how do you balance that with family life, your spiritual life, your personal life, and your work life. Yeah. One of our earlier guests, actually, our first guest this season, was talking about that balance of he viewed it as working really, really hard for a couple decades and then in his retirement being able to devote more time to other things and balancing that way, which I thought was interesting. You know, it's funny. I've heard that from a lot of people. Like a lot of people have told me early on, like, you know, the, the normal path, Rob, is to build your career, build your business, et cetera. And then when, when you have the fruits of that labor, then you can give and give back. For me, I don't think I would have been, it's not right or wrong, right? It's just different. I don't think I would have been fulfilled if, if, if I was doing that because part of my journey was kind of having that opportunity to do those things along the way. And, you know, I had, I had a mentor once who gave me an incredible definition of balance. And he actually said, it's not that attractive, Rob, but if you think of your life as a platter and on the platter are all these balls and physics would tell you only one ball can occupy the center of the platter. And throughout your life, you're going to put more and more balls on the platter. Um, And your job in your life is to figure out how to balance that platter. Um, But no matter how hard you try, there's going to be balls that are going to come off the platter. And your only job is to recognize which balls are rich because on that platter, you have rubber balls that when they come off the platter, they'll bounce. You can quickly catch them and put them right back on. You'll have steel balls that when they come off, they'll go thud. You've got to bend down while you're still balancing this platter and put them back on. But you've got glass balls on there too, that when they come off, they'll break. And when they break, you'll never get them back. And that's your family. That's your health. And so he said, no matter what you put on your platter, as long as you recognize the glass balls and make sure when you see one of them getting out to the edge, that you make sure you get it back to the, to the middle. Again, I'm not the perfect definition of balance and I haven't done it perfectly, but that has stuck with me my entire career. That's a really lovely sentiment. Thank you for sharing that. How do you decide which organizations you want to get involved in? And for our listeners who are maybe starting their involvement journey, where do you recommend people begin? Yeah, well, I I tell people it's first about passion. Um, Find the things that you care about that you're passionate about. I I think a lot of times people think that you're supposed to get on this board because it's a who's who's board or or this board because it will help their career. And the the truth of the matter is those, those who have served on boards, we see the difference of the people who come in because they're motivated by the mission and the passion. Uh, of the mission of the work and those that are coming in because they want to either pad their resume or help themselves in their business life. If you actually look at all the nonprofits that I've worked with, they all fall into kind of three categories. The first is kind of economic development. You know, city building doesn't just happen. It happens by thoughtful, caring people who lean in to create a city. You know, the second thing for me is kind of youth and, and education, that that's the great equalizer, right? And so um, I wanted to, I was passionate about helping kids. 
um, that maybe wouldn't have the opportunity that I had or other people have had. And then last, you see a common thread around sports. And, um, you know, it's transformational in my life. And, and, you know, I think it's sports in many ways is a microcosm for life, you know, the ups and downs and winning and losing and all, all of those aspects. And so almost everything I've done falls in those three categories. I want to ask you about the job climate mm-hmm. these days in Denver. Um, the governor just released a report with his budget where he said Colorado has twice as many job openings as people who are unemployed. And I'm wondering what you need to do these days to attract new talented workers. It's always been a challenge. Anyone who said that, you know, there are better times or not, but you know, it's a competitive marketplace, right? And if you want to attract and retain the very best, then you have to constantly be thinking what it is that they want and where, where do you meet them? You know, I, I used to joke when we opened our office down at Union Station, we kind of went to casual dress, let people wear, we call it client appropriate dress. So dress for the client that you're meeting with that day or you're talking to that day, but really meant that people were allowed to wear jeans. You know, at that time there were casual Fridays, <laughs> but not Monday through Friday. Yeah. Um, and then we opened a, a Starbucks on our first floor that was complimentary for our employees. Mm. Um, and our applications for job positions tripled. Really? And I said, you know, if someone had told me 10 years ago, all I had to do is let them wear jeans and give them free coffee, <laughs> I would have done it a, a, a long time ago. Um, I think in today's world, um, it, it's a lot more demanding. I mean, people want flexible work opportunities. And, and you know, it, at least in our company, that doesn't mean full, uh, fully in the office. It doesn't mean hybrid. And it doesn't mean fully remote. It means that everybody has the option and flexibility to figure out what works in their life. And I try to tell people that, you know, there's, there's choices that you make and there's pros and cons with each of the models. None of them are perfect. And, and this, this strive for life balance is not new. This is something, as long as I've been in the working world, we've been struggling for life balance, right? If you think about it, you know, work is supposed to be collaboration and learning from each other. And so if you create an environment where people want to do that, then you'll get higher productivity out of them. And that's not sitting at cubicles and in offices. That, 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 that's a misnomer. That just happened to be the quiet place where people did head downward. In our way, we give everybody um, the opportunity to have equity in our company. And, um, and that's how I think, you know, you can really separate yourself. You know, our compensation is competitive in terms of the, of the benefits that we provide and the, and, and the compensation, but giving people a chance to have equity gives them ownership in the company and the ability to create real wealth. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the, the genes and the Java, mm-hmm. but you've, <laughs> you've received a lot of awards and, and hardware in your career. Things like most admired CEO, urban legend, outstanding volunteer fundraiser, corporate citizen of the year. Is there a recognition that you've received that means the most to you personally? Mm, that's a great question. Um, I would say the recognition that I receive that means the most to me are the letters and cards that I get from our associates when they retire from our company. You know, they're usually the longer term employees who have been there for a while, who've been there through the thick and thin. And, um, and, um, it's, you know, the older I get in life, I realize there's two things that matter, right? There's relationships, which are people and there's experiences. And, um, and when it, when it's really meaningful is when you put the two together, right? When you have relationships with people and you experience 
something unique and different and the opportunity to build and create a company with a whole bunch of people who have the same stake in it is probably the greatest reward I've been given. This is a question that we ask all of our guests at the end of our interviews, and it's as a voice of experience on the Voices of Experience podcast, mm-hmm. what's something you would want to pass on to our listeners that you haven't already? Um, hopefully, hopefully I've said uh, most of it, but you know, you know, what I always tell people is don't be scared to go for your dreams. Um, you know, I had a high school coach who once asked me if I had dreams and I, I told him that I did. And he, he asked me to write my dreams down and share them with him the next day, uh, which I did. And, um, and, w- and when I did that, he said, you know, tonight after practice, you're going to, you're going to share these with your teammates. I said, no, sir, I'm not going to do that. And he said, cause some of them were personal, but some of them were team oriented. He goes, no, you are going to do that. So make a long story short, he made me stand up on a chair after practice and share the things I'd written down with my team. Um, I went home that night. The next morning he called me and he goes, um, you're not too happy with me, are you? And I said, no, sir, I'm not. And he goes, you really didn't like what I, what I told you to do. And, and I said, no. And he said, let me tell you why I told you to do that. He said, everybody dreams, but less than 2% of people ever even act on their dreams, let alone accomplish them. But if you have dreams and you write them down, they become goals. If you have goals and you share them with other people, they become passions, both because you told other people that you were going to do this. But guess what? None of us can accomplish our dreams without the help of other people. And the mere fact of writing your dream down and sharing it with other people increase the odds that not only will you act on your dream, but you'll have the chance to achieve your dream. So my advice to everyone is, Write your dreams down, make them goals, share them with others, go for it. You only got one life to live. That's Rob Cohen, chairman and CEO of the IMA Financial Group. Rob, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it as well. 34 years at one company is a long time, and it had us wondering, is that a path that still makes sense for up-and-coming professionals in today's business world? Rob gave a great answer about reinventing yourself at your current company, and how executives can make it easier to retain those high achievers. You can find that little online extra on our show notes page at daniels.du.edu slash voe podcast. You'll also find links to some mighty interesting Q&As Rob did with the Denver Business Journal, everything from how his mentoring relationships have changed over the years to his walk-up song if he ever played a concert at Red Rocks. It's worth a read, seriously. The VOE podcast is an extension of Voices of Experience, the signature speaker series at the Daniels College of Business, sponsored by U.S. Bank. Chloe Smith is our sound engineer. Alumnus Joshua Metzl wrote our theme. I'm Lauren Fultzenberg, and if you'd be so kind, leave us a rating and review wherever you're listening, and we'll see you next time.